Welcome into the DNVR Rockies podcast presented by The Green Solution. Visit any one of their 18 Colorado locations or go online to mygreensolution.com and use that promo code DNVR20. You'll get 20% off your entire purchase. I am your host, Drew Creaseman. I am the managing editor of DNVR Rockies. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on the second inning of Ken Burns' baseball documentary. Along with Patrick Lyons and my mother, Barbara Creaseman, we continue to go through the early days, the 1900 to 1910, basically, is the decade we are in here. Some of the first classic, great, really well-known players in the history of baseball, but perhaps just as interestingly, a few characters who should be much more well-known. And so we were kind of getting into that conversation. We're going back and forth here. You'll you'll hear us jump into uh, the talk about John McGraw and Christy Mathewson before too long. Just want to remind everybody, if you're stuck inside these days, you're, you're worried about going out, but you still got to get your Breck brew because you do still got to get your Breck brew, check out the app Drizzly. Uh, they're doing uh, delivery stuff. They can get stuff out there to you. Uh, Breck Brew is delivering as well. They're delivering food. Uh, They've got a curbside pickup there out at the uh, Littleton Farmhouse location so they can take care of you. They can make sure that you're not missing out on your hot peak or your avalanche or your agave wheat uh, or certainly the strawberry sky. You don't want to be missing out on all that stuff. So make sure you check out the Drizzly app. You order your Breck Brews and you kick back, relax, and enjoy the rest of our conversation on the second inning. All right, so um, my guys got me all off of my notes here. <laughs> this is fantastic. We're all over the. Oh yeah, okay. So we were sort of getting into Christy Matthews, and there was one last thing I wanted to say about uh, John McGraw, um, because as we were talking about him as this really more complicated three dimensional character, I thought it was fascinating that George Bernard Shaw, the writer, said, "I have at last discovered the most remarkable man in America." And I think that's a, another reminder, too, about sort of the different ways in which language was used at the time. The word remarkable would have been used much more literally. We've got a very positive connotation on that word now. And Shaw was saying there is as much to remark about John McGraw, who he is as a person, these th- things he had done, deciding not to play the World Series, being a clear kind of racist who was willing to look past it to win a baseball game. Uh, like a f- one of the most fascinating human beings in the history of our great sport. And I think we could all do for a movie and or a documentary just on the life and times of John McGraw. I don't know why this doesn't exist. Yeah, I thought about that too. Very interesting again. And was in the game for so long. Yeah, I don't think there is anything like that, you know, on him. Uh, I don't. I don't even know that he plays a, a small role in in the background of, of any films. Cause he um, never really crossed paths with, with Babe Ruth. Um, I, don't, I don't think they, um, the giants had gone to the world series in the twenties by that point, but you're right. Yeah. Just super interesting guy. And as you said, George Bernard Shaw, you know, obviously being a, a British, you know, playwright commenting on an American baseball player, you know, football, obviously, or I should say soccer, um, you know, being, being the, <laughs> the sport of that nation and of the world at the time, you know, baseball, you know, people were taking notice, not just of America as a country kind of 
entering in uh, into our uh, our second century. You know, now now just over a hundred years old, but you know our sport is now getting noticed by you know great authors and and thinkers of the day, and I, and I think that leads in really well with all of the other uh, literal uh, pieces of baseball, um, particularly Casey at the bat, which is one of my favorite um, pieces of, of literature of all time. Wasn't it great seeing that vaudeville performance? <laughs> that was intense. That guy was in it, man. <laughs> and he's covered in makeup and you see he's got the eyeliner on. And I, I wanted to, I thought they were going to show the whole thing. They cut out the middle parts and you see the end. Yeah. And as soon as he's done, the mighty Casey has struck out and then he smiles. He's like, Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, just <laughs> immediately flips the switch. But, um, but he was the one D Wolf Hopper was the one that really took Ernest Thayer's poem to the next level. Cause uh, as it was said, you know, he kind of cut this uh, newspaper clipping out, kept it in his pocket. I think it was published in San Francisco and ultimately said, Oh, this is nice. I'm going to start performing it. Um, I even I own a, a book that I, I've, I've yet to read all about, you know, the, the, not just the history of Casey at the bat, but all the different iterations that people have, put out and different like versions about, you know, what, what Casey was like after his career. Um, at least once a year, I'll, I ha you have to go back and, and read, you read Casey at the bat for me. I, I'll read it to myself. I'll read it to my wife and then go back and listen to James Earl Jones version of that. Oh and it just, you're like, okay, well, Hey, that's why I went first because you can't, you obviously can't match James Earl Jones for that. No, yeah, he'd be hard to follow, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Piggybacking off that, of course, we had take me out to the ball game in nineteen oh eight. What did you think? What did that. you think of that? The fact that there, that you know, take me out to the ball game. The part that we sing is only the chorus, and that there is a there is a first and second verse. What did you think of that first verse? I I love it. I actually think it adds to the song quite a bit, just like from a musical perspective, not that yeah. we're here to do, but I, I really enjoyed it. And, and a, there's a grand tradition so that it, again, mirroring the American national anthem, which has mm. several other verses that yeah. we do not sing at baseball games. We just do the first one. Uh, so it's, yeah, there, there's just this great parallelism uh, between those two things, a great irony in that uh, the person who wrote it had never been to a That's baseball right. game, which is just it, 32 it's, years, 32 yes. years after he, w he wrote that he went to his first game 32 yeah. years later. But the romanticism of the game, yeah. the, the myth, the, the ubiquitousness of it already by this time in American culture that someone could have romantic feelings about being taken out to the ball game when they've literally never been is, is pretty mind blowing. And capturing it from a, not the point of view of a young boy idolizing these players and, you know, being on the street playing stick ball and, and trying to emulate his heroes. It was taken from a perspective of a, a, a young woman named Katie, whose boyfriend, you know, wants to take her out to a show. And she's like, actually, I want you to take me out to the ball game. And it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. I, I, I thought I was impressing some of the Sabre members. You and I are, of, of course, both members of our the Rocky Mountain chapter of, of Sabre. 
and I tried to impress one of them. Like, did you know there was a first verse? Uh, and he says, and, and I, you know, I, I said or sang some of it and he goes, well, do you know what the second one is? And I go, no, I, I don't know what the second <laughs> one is. And he proceeded to sing it. I'm like, man, this is some company I'm keeping here. I was impressed. So he, he had me that day. Bill Albach, give him a shout out. Fantastic. Our treasurer. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So I, I did want to give a little more love to another character in the eventual John McGraw documentary movie that you, you and I are going to have to make. Apparently, apparently, um, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was the player about whom McGraw said this. He used his knowledge of batsmen with greater effect than any twirler in the game and was one of the finest sportsmen the game had ever known. Christy Mathewson, uh, the master of the fall away, Patrick, the fall away. <laughs> the, 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 that pitch, that intricate description of a pitch that takes how long? Right. This. Yeah, yeah. The the blink of an eye to get to the plate, and it. But to describe it takes a good two or three minutes. Right. <laughs> I I enjoyed the fact that you know, and again, credit, give credit where credits due, and the, these guys did. Um, that McGraw brought in Rube Foster, uh, the eventual founder of the Negro National League. Will. We'll see that in a couple of innings from now, but he actually came in and, and he showed some of the Giants players a, a thing or two and even, you know, taught Matheson that pitch, which was so, um, you know, key to his his success as as the big six, the Christian gentleman. That's a great nickname. And you and you you, you said another one of those words that harkens back to a, a foregone era that isn't used quite as much, but the fact that uh, McGraw called Matthewson, a twirler. Twirler. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, another, we've got to keep eye on this. First one was easy. Cy Young had the stat of inning one. Just hand him the award forever. In <laughs> fact, name the award after him. Uh, <laughs> that's never been now done. Now we, we, we do had that. Honus. Yeah, we, yeah that's, that's a new idea, right? Uh, Honus Wagner and his, you know, 15 consecutive seasons batting over 300 or... Christy Matthewson, three complete game shutouts. That's 27 innings in the World Series without giving up a run. Yeah, I'll go with that one. Yeah? I definitely go with that one. Because there's been other players I think that have have, you know, strung together consecutive, you know, greater than three hundred batting average seasons. Again, no knock on Wagner. Um, but yeah, the fact that he just dominated like that. I mean, you give all the credit in the world to, to what a Madison Bumgarner did in 2014 and you go, oh man, that's that's unlike anything else or that's so dominant, but it wasn't 27 innings of dominance and it wasn't zero earned runs or three complete game shutouts. Um, that's, that's unreal. You're right. And here I thought you might like go look for your guy, Walter Johnson, 110 shutouts. Career, we yeah, that'll never. Yeah, be. We put, yeah, yeah, we got to okay. put that on the table. Is that well? Let's just do it now. Yeah, because is that the best Walter? Jan is that the most unbeatable Walter Johnson stat? Yeah, uh, one hundred ten so, yeah. complete game shutouts. I don't know if they're complete game. It didn't say that. Uh, 
say. So would have back then. Kind of I don't even yeah. think they, yeah. No, so, okay, so here we go. This is. All right. Let's talk to the man who knows the Walton Johnson. My man, it's my man. It's a big train. Um, so 110 was complete game shutouts. Okay. Complete good. game yeah. shutouts. Complete games, 531. Oh. So. <laughs> 90s. He only started 666. So you do the math on that. We're looking close to 90% of the games he started were he started it and he he threw the last pitch of that game. He started and finished. 70 wow. yeah, 80%. 80% of the games that that he 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 made that first pitch of the game, he also finished it. Unbelievable. That's amazing. Maybe that's why he had to have all these shutouts so he didn't have to make more pitches than necessary. Yeah, that's just will never, just never be beaten. I mean, we we think nowadays if you can throw two complete game shutouts, that that could you know lead the league in shutouts, right? Well, he in in 1913 he did it 11 times, just <laughs> unreal. It's it's hard to do that in a career with how the game set up at this point. So it's yeah, Walter Johnson, that's my guy. That's my that's guy. That's a guy. I love it. I love yep. it. Um, I loved, uh, I have this just written above my Walter Johnson notes, but I think it fits in with that conversation. Um, one of my favorite quotes from the piece coming from Doris Kearns Goodwin, who will continue to be fantastic throughout the rest of uh, the documentary, always a, a favorite in our family. And she described the battle between the pitcher and the hitter as being like a heavyweight boxing match where two people are dueling each other. And of course, people talk about Walter Johnson, like he threw this massive uppercut knockout punch <laughs> every time they had to face him. Yeah, he, he was, um, he was unlike anybody at that time, because again, besides having the the speed that, you know, can be debated, you know, how fast it was. And, and you compare it to guys who pitch today, but of his time, he was head and shoulders above the rest. His fastball was head and shoulders above the rest. So even if you want to say he only threw 93, there wasn't anybody else touching 90. And you kind right. of see that the human body is is essentially the same as it was 100 years ago. And 500-plus complete games, throwing 93, hey, what's the value of, of throwing 98? Oh, all right, so you can have Tommy John surgery you know, twice over the course of your career and, and you're lucky if you can throw 200 innings. So I get it. The game has changed, but he's, he kind of is, you know, the, the pinnacle of, of what, you know, the best athlete of a generation or, or possibly best athlete of all time can do when the game is kind of has that balance. And, and I think during, in, during and around this time, the game has a lot of that balance and there's not, having one skill like if i throw really fast i'm going to get a contract and that's going to be my value or if i can hit the ball really far and hit a lot more home runs that's going to be my value this was just about wins and losses during this era and there was nobody you wanted to have on the hill uh, at that point in a big game than walter johnson yeah i love the description <laughs> ty call ty called him a tall shambling galoot <laughs> I'm going to have to look up what that last word means. 
Galoot. Yeah, you big Galoot. Usually I think that's kind of putting someone down, but if Cobb was saying that about Johnson, now I'm beginning to think Galoot might be more of a compliment. Indeed, uh, which I think brings us to always one of the more difficult baseball players in the history of the game to talk about. Charles Comiskey said, the greatest baseball player of all time, the Detroit man, the most expert man of his profession. He plays ball with his whole anatomy. I believe he would play if he was charged for the privilege and with only the groundskeeper in attendance. Ty Cobb, the man who loved baseball so much, he hated just about everything else. Um, But still, the story of baseball is incomplete, I think. Well, I know. We we all know. uh, Without the story of Ty Cobb, and who was the other writer uh, who said, you know, he is the example of how far you can get in life simply through will. Um, he's a lesson in a lot of different directions. I think about what that drive can do. There have been other great athletes who I feel like have towed this line. Even somebody like Michael Jordan, who's written and talked about hating to lose and getting a bit maniacal in practice, driving teammates to the brink. But it, it was like whatever filter managed to keep J- Jordan a likable human being, at least for his teammates and the newspaper people at the time and everyone else seemed to have escaped Ty Cobb. And, and according to certain documentaries and movies and things, some of which is disputed by the Cobb family, but um, sort of drove him to a, an early end of his life and, and just a tragic, just a tragic life, man. It, it's like I said, it's a tough one to, to discuss, but yeah, there for he good. is. For those who don't know, you know, one of the earliest moments that shaped his life was, you know, the fact that his mother shot and killed his father. And, you know, to that, he just said, he, I didn't get over that. I've never gotten over that. And that was, you know, on the precipice of becoming a big le- leaguer with the Detroit Tigers. At that point, the relationship he had with his father was very tumultuous where his father just, you know, it was never good enough what he did for his father, you know, don't, don't come back a loser or don't come back with, with anything less than, than the most success you can possibly have. And again, just as he's about to kind of, you know, take the baseball world by storm, you know, his, his father's life is just kind of uh, wiped away in, in the blink of an eye. And, you know, that, that, that stuck with him and, and that, that attitude, that, that gung ho attitude he had and, never say die and always wanting to be the first, you know, it, it always stuck with him. The, the one story that was uh, shared, I think it might've been by George Will who said that, you know, he, he would always rush back to the hotel to be or the room um, that he shared yeah. with a, a teammate. He'd always have to be the first one to have a bath. And on one day where his roommate happened to get back before him, he, he pretty much yanked him out of the tub saying, you don't understand. I have to be first. So he was competitive about about you know absolutely everything. It was also George Will that said, and in reference to Ty Cobb, was you know he starts saying baseball's the kind of game you can't play with clenched teeth, and Ty mm. Cobb never played it without clenched teeth. Mm. Baseball, and, is, yeah. 
that describes the the person, the man, you know. Sure. And Cobb even said, you know, baseball is something like a war, and that's where this second inning gets its name, something like war. There's there's a lot that I could go on more about Ty Cobb, and I, I think, you know, uh, that that will kind of play out a little bit over this documentary, some of the stuff about, you know, what he did later on in his life and even the friendships he had with, with younger modern day players and how even in those friendships he had to win and he, he, he had to win everything. And he, he damn near did Um, never actually won a a world series played um, in, in three consecutive world series with the tigers from, from 07 to 09. And, you know, had, had a good, uh, 1908 World Series where he hit over 300, but otherwise, you know, kind of got lost. It was in the early part of his career. Um, I found it interesting when they talked about in 1909 where he was kind of in the middle. He kind of had this this spell unlike, you know, any athlete uh, ever, almost, almost like, you know, when Rodman was, was playing and it seemed like every <laughs> night he would go out to a club and get into something. It was, you would watch the game to see what kind of shenanigans he would get into. And then you would, you know, turn on ESPN to find out what he was doing after the game. And in 1909, when he um, spiked the third baseman, Frank home run Baker, Connie Mack called him the dirtiest player in the game, which is interesting. And for numerous reasons, because at the end of Cobb's career, you know, Connie Mack rung him up and, and made sure that he had Cobb for the final two years of his career. Still wasn't enough to, to get a World Series ring, which I'm sure was something that Cobb probably, you know, had to had to go to the grave with. The fact knowing that he had he had never never won uh, the big series in his career. Yeah, you just know that that had to eat at him. Um, that despite how much people disliked him, he was still known as it was him and Honus Wagner were the greats and everybody knew it. It was the, you know, Kobe LeBron of its day. And he won 12 batting titles in 13 years out of like pure rage and anger. He even said like, there was one quote he had that I think like, it's just an open window into the psyche of this man where he talked about, he added 50 points to his batting average. Yeah. By basically by being an ass. Yeah. <laughs> and like, Imitating. but he said it like it was a positive, like, and, and it, it was clear that his batting average was one of the most important things to him in his life. And, you know, we ask these modern ball players about their batting average and they pretend like they don't know it. They know it, but they pretend like they don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what year it was. If it was, you know, 1916, they didn't mention it in the in this second inning. I imagine they will in the next one because it's kind of notable. He, um, you know, he was, he was going for the batting crown against um, Napoleon Lajway, the second baseman for the the Cleveland Naps. He was a player manager. And so they named the team after him. Hey, they're going to call them the Naps for Napoleon Lajway. And it was going down to the last game of the season. And again, as you mentioned, his teammates didn't like him. They would call other people up on the phone and congratulate them if they had a good game against Cobb or um, in this instance, you know, they, uh, they, they really wanted to, to see Lajway win that batting title. And on the final game of the, of the, of the year, uh, I, I don't, I don't know the, the exact details of it all, but ultimately the third baseman, the opposing team against uh, Lajway played so far back, almost on the grass, knowing full well that Lajway was just going to lay down a bunt 
and he did every single time. And I think he went like four for four, and he won the batting crown on the final day. So I think that might have been 1916. Again, kind of showing you how everybody, everybody hated Ty Cobb. And Cubs teammates sent the guy a congratulation note or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, just just phenomenal stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know quite how to transition from that <laughs> into uh, some of these other kind of urban legendy myth things that I, I wanted to go over here. Um, I guess there was the 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 reading of Tinkers to Evers to Chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, of course, uh, a classic poem by Franklin P. Adams uh, uh, about the 1906 Chicago Cubs infield. Uh, argued back then, the greatest team in history. They won 116 games. Uh, you, you can't help but remark on the irony of how good the Cubs and Red Sox were at this time. And, and that, that, of course, became a huge thing because then it was 100 years before either of those teams could win again. Precisely, yeah. Yeah, the, the fun thing about Joe Tinker, uh, another guy from Kansas, Muscota, Kansas, um, was that he actually played uh, in the 1900 Denver Grizzlies. He was, he was 19 years old, uh, played 32 games there, and then was, was released. Uh, and then two years later, he was with the Chicago franchise. So, again, in each, each inning there, although, you know, it's not until the 90s that Colorado, you know, kind of bursts onto the scene and, you know, you've got Goose Gossage really being the only other major representative from the Centennial State. Um, but there's there's little pieces here and there, if, if you know where to look, um, that ties Colorado in with the history of baseball. And Joe Tinker is, is one of those guys. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, beyond that, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I did like the the writer who came out and, and remarked that that infield was not necessarily better than any of the other infields. And I always think, what about the third baseman? It, it, it's definitely, this was about poetry and rhythm. We talked before the importance of writing and wordsmithery, the story of baseball. But the first baseman is not exactly a super important part of turning a double play. If I'm the third baseman on that team, I'm going, hey. <laughs> That's a good question. You asked that. I'm like, who was the third baseman? And then I remembered, I've dug deep into my memory. I was like, I think it was Wildfire Schulte. And I'm looking it up now. And yeah, Frank Wildfire Schulte. Because that, that's one wow. that's going to win you. If you're in Chicago, you go to a bar and you want to get a free drink. You ask them, all right, who is the third baseman? Ah, they're not going to get it. Also, uh, you know, going back to our, our Saber group that we're a part of, uh, yesterday was the 160th consecutive luncheon. Uh, that we held. It was at our, our president's uh, house, Paul Parker. He, he lives down the street from me in, in Boulder. And so there was four of us and we were all six feet apart just on his, uh, in his driveway. It was a beautiful sunny day here in Colorado. And, and there was a Cubs fan there and I asked him how the Cubs got their nickname and he didn't know. So I'm now going to win you your second beer if you go to Chicago and you're in a Cubs bar. And the Cubs got their name. I, sh- I don't know the exact year, but again, we've, we talked on the, uh, the previous two episodes about how nicknames were a little bit more fluid at that time. Well, uh, in one particular offseason, the, the Chicago uh, club, who were, they were known as the Orphans at the time because they had you know, gotten a lot of players from, from various leagues all over the place. They brought in a lot of younger players, a lot of young 
ball players at the time. And so the scribes in Chicago called them the Cubs because oh, they were wow. so young. So there you go. So next time you go to Chicago, uh, you probably don't have to pick up the tab. <laughs> if you're on the, if you're on the <laughs> north side. Yeah, if you're on the north side. <laughs> so I wanted to, uh, since you brought up the names uh, and naming conventions here, throw a couple of my favorite. I, I did just two of mine from the Negro Leagues. I saw you had a bunch of others and we can, or from the early, like the pre-Negro Leagues when, when uh, black ball players were just getting together and organizing some stuff. I particularly liked the French Lick Plutos <laughs> and the Page Fence Giants. Big, big Page Fence Giants guy, am I. Uh, Patrick, do you have any other <laughs> favorite team names from this? They they were fantastic. I I honestly didn't remember how off the wall these names were. I knew they they were you know wild. That's one of the reasons why I kind of in, embrace the the new names that that come out. But uh, I I didn't realize how how wild they were. Des Moines Undertakers may have been the best one. And if WWE wants to you know hook up with the Iowa Cubs and do a Des Moines Undertakers Day, I mean, come on, that's that's fantastic. Cincinnati Porkers comes in at a close second place. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then I didn't want us to not mention the phenomenal story of uh, the young woman who, well, she, she was young when she started, but Alta Weiss yeah. and her wide bloomers. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, this phenomenal story of a woman who just decided she loved the game of baseball so much. She was going to play it. She didn't care what anyone thought and that there weren't leagues for women. She just played on the men's leagues and was on a semi-pro team at 17 and was a star. A star. People came. I think that's one of those things that it proves that if you've got good players, regardless of who they are, that people really came out to see her because she was that good, built the audience. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we've, we've said it already that, you know, Ken Burns made this in an era where, um, you know, people weren't looking at every decision that was made and, and, Hey, why didn't you give this part to this person? Or, you know, where's, uh, why can't you diversify, uh, your staff and things of that nature? But he took it upon himself to, to mention this figure of, of Alta Weiss and she's, Honestly, she's not anybody that I've, I've seen you know, a lot of books written about. You know, I, I read baseball books, and, and every spring there's there's close to probably 100 new baseball books. And, you know, some of them go under the radar. Um, but I've not seen anything about Alta Weiss. So it's pretty fantastic that he, you know, was able to, to find some balance here in uh, the history of baseball when – you know, for, for this first several decades, it was just a game played, you know, by white people, um, forcibly so, but it was a game played by white men. And, and Burns is doing a really nice job telling the story about the other people that, uh, in, in our country that, that played the game and loved the sport. Right. And that people did, I think sometimes when we look at back at baseball, like you talked about, because it's the more known thing in the major leagues, that it's white men. But actually, women and black men and people from basically all, uh, I mean, we still, I mean, we have people from South America coming in and playing so on different leagues. And so there, 
there was a Cuban group in uh, the Negro League, which was kind of interesting. So uh, that they were playing baseball. They just weren't the ones, I guess, getting, uh, well, people went to see them. But when we look back at it, we don't think that the, it's like we miss a big part of what was really happening by just focusing on the white uh, Major League Baseball. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And there's there's going to be a couple more of those that pop up long before we get um, to the Colorado Silver Bullets. Um, and Babe Diedrichson, <laughs> Zaharias is probably the biggest mm-hmm. one. She's she might she's the greatest female athlete of all time. Um, I behold. So I'm I can't wait I to agree. see. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go, Drew. Your vote does not. I'm, I've already outvoted. So I'm with that's you, it. fellas. That's it. <laughs> I am. And she played all the sports. Oh yeah, she, she was. I think, all I, think, the I think golf might have actually been her best sport. I, I'm not sure, but. And then she won a couple gold medal uh, gold medals in, in track and field, but just oh yeah, she was she was fantastic. So, so yeah, and I'm I'm glad definitely glad you brought that up, Drew, about Alta Weiss. I I, I want to learn more about her. I definitely do want to do that. Hundred percent. And she went on to be a doctor. So you know she wow. must have had a big full life. Moonlight uh, Graham. Yeah. Moonlight Except Graham. for she exactly. actually played. Existed. She got more than one at bat. <laughs> she kind of <laughs> she was really good. Um. In this vein, and I do sadly need to start wrapping this one up. I know the three of us could sit and talk about this stuff forever. Unfortunately, I have to go watch an incredibly stupid television show as part of something we're doing with the pro wrestling. Family. Is it pro wrestling? I, I <laughs> wish a <laughs> hundred times over. I wish. Well, well, there are I, I, there are going to be some people listening that go, "Oh, you have to watch a stupid show." Oh, it's the pro wrestling show. No, actually, <laughs> no. No, no, you have not no. gauged our temperature on that. <laughs> uh, indeed. Um, so on the one hand, I don't want to blow by this. On the other hand, uh, I do know that we're going to ha- be able to talk about this aspect of it a lot more. And I do want to make our future episodes focus in a lot more on the Negro Leagues. But we have to talk about, uh, well, well, first we got to mention at the very least, John Henry Pop Lloyd. Uh, who Honus Wagner said he was honored that people compared Pop Lloyd to Wagner. Uh, but the real standout here was Rube Foster. Um, the guy, if anyone shows how stupid it was that these guys weren't allowed to play, the guy's got 123 and six record and John McGraw back to, Old crank, though not fans, cranks. <laughs> not the, Mag- but, the crank. but hired this guy essentially as a pitching coach. I, I thought it was interesting the terminology they worked around, like brought him in to try to teach some of the pitchers how to do some things. You mean a pitching coach? And brought him in to show Christy Matthewson how to throw his famous fall away. The greatest pitcher of his era. And I think what Burns did here was so brilliant because he brings this near the end of the documentary, he's built the legends of Honus Wagner and Christy Mathewson, who are names we know, but now, now we really know their legends and their stories and their battles with people like Ty Cobb. And then we're presented with this character, Rube Foster, and we're told, yeah, Christy Mathewson basically tailored his game after this guy. And you recognize that had Rube been allowed to play, uh, 
he may have the legend of a Christy Mathewson or a Walter Johnson. Uh, there may be more people across this country who have the story like you do about Walter Johnson and falling in love with him and, and reading the whole book and doing the whole thing about this guy, if he had been allowed to do it, but that he still had the humility and the humbleness to go there and teach pitchers who were apparently too good to share the field with him how to do their thing. What a remarkable human being. Give me the Rube Foster story yesterday, please. Yeah. I'm glad you brought him back up because he, you know, his, his story gets even more interesting after his playing career. In fact, he's, he's enshrined in the hall of fame as an executive for what he did for the game of baseball. Um, I believe he was even a, a scout for some of the major league teams scouting in, in the Negro leagues because he was just so revered. He's, he's considered the father of black baseball and, you know, he definitely has earned that recognition and he's an important figure that you're right. He does not get talked about. I hear, you hear John McGraw, you know, he's, he's definitely acknowledged for what he did with the, the national league Baltimore Orioles and the Baltimore chop and uh, as a great manager in the New York giants. But you hear virtually nothing about Rube Foster because everything he did was, was more behind the scenes. As you said, as a pseudo pitching coach that we're not going to give credit to, um, like all coaches, not getting enough credit. So right. most of the stuff he did was behind the scenes. And again, as the next couple innings go on, we'll hear you know more about him. And I think that's, as you pointed out, it was towards the end of this episode. And I think that kind of plants the seed that, okay, in the, the 1910s and teens, we're going to hear more about uh, the need for um, an organized Negro League to come about. And Rube Foster is going to be that guy. So we'll have more opportunity to talk about him and, and those developments, but we have to end on a lighter note. <laughs> possibly. Yeah, I love you. We can't not. We should. Uh, yeah. Barbara, Barbara. <laughs> so Barbara, are there any other points uh, that we missed? I think we covered everything. Was there? We, we covered a lot. What are the okay. things I wanted to say? And this is, this oh. is light and lighter is that, one of the things that has carried through, you know, both of the, the shows that we've watched so far is Kim Burns really having the ability to point out that the good and the bad, the players that had respect for each other and those that just disdained the competition, you know, he shows that in so many aspects of the game, whether it's the players, the owners, the crowds, whatever, it's such a combination and juxtaposition of those kind of values throughout. Yeah. So. Whether you believe in fair play or if you're not cheating. That was just a very nice sentiment. And now I have to transition into talking about Merkel's boner. (laughs) Yeah. It's weird to transition to have to talk talk about a boner. You know, it, it's weird. It almost as weird as having to talk about manscaped in front of your mother. But we know that if Merkel's boner had been manscaped, it would have at least been a little bit smoother, a little bit cleaner. He could have gotten twenty percent off his entire purchase and free shipping using code DNVR twenty, just like anybody else can out there. Manscaped has advanced skin safe technology. Manscaping accidents are a thing of the past with Manscaped. You can keep yourself clean 
You can keep yourself fresh. The battery lasts up to 90 minutes, so you can take that longer shave. You don't want to be cutting corners, literally, figuratively. You don't want corners situation at all. You got to keep yourself clean. You got to trim it up. You got to be, you know, a lot of these, you don't want rowdyism. Rowdyism. <laughs> you don't want rowdyism down below. So, so get your manscaped. Uh, they'll send you a really cool package, pun intended. Uh, the It'll arrive at your door. There, there's some nicely scented stuff. They get you a little toiletry bag. Everything is fantastic. Your lower extremities will be fairly appreciative of the time you have spent. And you can take the time, because the battery lasts so long, uh, to describe, as you were manscaping, the story mm. of Merkel's boner. Oh, you put maybe that on the me. single, the, 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 maybe the single greatest play in the history of professional sports. That's right, Patrick. It, you're it, up. It probably took five minutes, three to five minutes, for them to explain just what happened <laughs> on a single play. And now I've got to remember all that. Uh, no, well, long story short, was it was a, it was a game late in the season in September between the New York Giants and Chicago Cubs. And uh, this was played in the polo grounds and uh, one of the original versions of, of the polo grounds. And, um, you know, a, a single with, with bases loaded, uh, walk-off single and uh, into the outfield. And Fred Merkel decided going from first to second, eh, I don't need to touch second base. It's a walk-off hit. He's got a hit. Scored the run. We won the game. The end. Crowd kind of rushes the field. And uh, I think it was the Johnny Evers, the second baseman, kind of realized he, he didn't touch second base. And he knew full well that the umpire in that game had had a similar instance uh, of this only a couple weeks prior. So he, he kind of alerted the outfielders, like, get that ball to me now, even though the game is over, right? Get that ball in. Uh, they did. They had to kind of hunt down some fans for it, uh, chased him down, and got the ball in stood on second base and, you know, an out call was made, but no real official decision uh, was made until, until two days later, they decided, all right, I guess, you know, that's, if they have to replay the game, they're going to have to, it's kind of unclear, right? They definitely didn't win the game because he didn't reach second base. It's a force out. So that run never scored as they were two outs uh, at that time in the ninth. Um, so the game was never finished. Uh, lo and behold, they got to the final game uh, of the regular season, and both the Giants and Cubs had the exact same win-loss record. So they, they had to play the first game 163, although at that time I think it was probably game 151. Um, right, <laughs> sure. And, and thus, it, you know, had, had the Giants you know, won the rest of the way out and, and you know, gone to the World Series, because at that point, again, if you won your league, you went to the World Series. That was it. There was no... That was the only playoff that there was. That was the only postseason was the singular World Series. Um, but as, as luck would have it, no, they, they had to go to that, that final bonus game. And the Cubs ended up winning, thus cementing the uh, error, if you would, uh, by Fred Merkel, who was only 19 years old at the time. It's oh, brutal. And so it begins brutal. a sad... Tragedy history of, uh, you know, Buckner and and Bartman and and Merkel's boner to the people who's sadly even like 
actual lives became a bit of a living hell because of a silly, ridiculous mistake made on or in Bartman's case, just kind of near the baseball diamond. He wasn't even a ball player, but um, these things in baseball that it's amazing over the course of either 162, 150, you know, all these games, X number of pitches, hundreds and hundreds of pitches and games and at bats and one base running mistake, one ball between the legs, one foul ball that isn't caught and an entire city will implode on itself. (laughs) It's actually impressive that he was able to play 14 more years after that. Right. Yeah. That he's still able to kind of have a career and, and kind of ignore the boo birds. I think I looked up one year. He, uh, the only other, I guess, dubious, uh, award, if you will. Um, he won was he he struck out 80 times in a season and that was the most for the league. (laughs) But 80 times was the most. Like, right. oh my gosh. Imagine. Yeah, so that's a, that's a shame that that happened. And then, um, again, that little bit of research that you do for, for two minutes to try to see, to freshen your memory on, on a couple of things was that Christy Matheson was actually supposed to start that game. They didn't mention it in the um, in the second inning, but he kind of said he just he wasn't feeling it that day. He stepped aside and three-finger Brown, he was feeling it that day, came in in relief. Um, and down the stretch for the Cubs, uh, he actually started or relieved in 11 of the 14 of the last games that year. Unbelievable. Wow. Mordecai, Peter, Centennial, Brown. I love that guy, too. He's He might be my number two guy. Oh, man, yeah. We didn't even get into talking about him much. We might have to, to get it. We'll get him in there in the next one. But we do have to wrap this one up. Uh, there will be plenty of more conversation about the Ken Burns baseball documentary. We will watch inning three next Tuesday at maybe 5 p.m. We're thinking about maybe moving it back a little bit so that more people can watch it. We'll we'll find out. We're trying to find the exact best way to do this. But it is going to be on Tuesday in the early evening-ish time. (laughs) We'll be watching inning number three. We'll be able to pick up a lot more of this conversation until Plenty more fantastic stories go through uh, some of our favorite parts. So make sure that you are following along with us. You're following everybody on social media at Patrick B. Lyons, at Drew Creaseman, at DNVR underscore Rockies. We'll set up your Twitter eventually. (laughs) At Barbara Creaseman something once we get that going. And otherwise, just make sure that you're subscribing to everything so that you don't miss out, uh, that you're staying safe out there, that you're being smart and that you're continuing to be absolutely awesome. We will continue to be absolutely Patrick Lyons, Drew, and Barbara Creaseman. And until next time, we will see you at the ballpark.